0: You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Before we jump into the text for today, I do see some new faces, so I want to introduce myself. My name is Justin. I serve as the associate pastor here at Midtown, and I'm more than excited to talk about this book of Haggai. It's one of my favorite books, um, and this is kind of what is known as a post-exile period, which I'm kind of a nerd, like that's my favorite little Old Testament period, so I want to uh, tell you guys a little bit more about that. Um, it's going to be really fun for us to, to look into this last chapter, and it's a two-week series because it's a, two, it's a two-chapter book, <laughs> so if you weren't here last week, you really missed out, and I actually would really, really encourage you to go back and listen to last week because Haggai is just such a unique book, and what you heard last week bleeds into what we're going to do, so I'm going to do a little bit of a summary just in case you weren't here to kind of catch you up, but really would encourage you to listen to Matt's uh, word that he shared with us last week uh, from chapter one. Um, Matt cracked me up last week. He, he actually had us like raise your hand and he said, like, uh, how many of you um, know, have ever heard the name Haggai? <laughs> or How many of you uh, could find it in your Bible? Or how many of you have actually read it? Or how many of you have... And the hands just kept dropping. <laughs> like, how many of you could summarize what Haggai is? But it's just such a great book in the Minor Prophets. And then Matt really cracked me up because he said, this is kind of like... A deep cut. We're going to look at an indie, an indie prophet. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's hilarious. It actually reminded me about the guy that I studied the Old Testament under. He used to say when we'd read these smaller books of the Bible, you'd be like, man, you got to know these books, guys, because like, what's going to happen when you get to heaven? And Haggai walks up to you and says like, hey man, what do you think about my book? Like, like, <laughs> like, what are you going to say? You want to have something to say, right? So... Not the best motive for, for reading uh, these little books at the back of your Old Testament, much better motives, and the real great motive is, man, we can learn so much about it, because it's, it, it tells a story of something that God was doing in the history of a group of people. And there's so many applications that you can look at it, you can look at it for today. There's prophetic parts that point to the future that we can put our hope in. But what I really love about the book of Haggai in particular is there's so much that you can look at it and relate to what they were going through, to all kinds of things that we're going through in our lives. And that's what I really hope uh, to do here this morning, is help you relate uh, to this book and hear what Haggai says in his uh, second and third and fourth uh, prophecies when he speaks uh, to the people. Just to give a little bit of the background, uh, Haggai's prophecy comes in what's called the post-exile period. And so timeline-wise, in 586, that's when uh, the Babylonians captured uh, Judah, and they made them all captive, and they scattered them through the lands. And if you know, this was something that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, calling the people to repent, to repent, to repent, and they never did. And so ultimately, what he promised would happen, they would be captive by another nation. So they're captive by the Babylonians and spread all throughout the land. But 48 years later, another empire arises, and the Medes and the Persians combine their empires to conquer the Babylonians. And so, in that period, uh, forty-eight years into the ba- reign of the Babylonians, forty-eight years into the captivity, their king, King Cyrus, the first king of Persia, is very different. And what he says he's going to do is he's actually going to release the people, uh, uh, the Hebrew people, can actually go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Very gracious king, very different from Babylonian. He says, he said, "Hey, you guys can go actually rebuild this." And so, about fifty thousand people make this journey to go start building the temple. And you can pick this up actually in the book of Ezra. So what's really unique is Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah are all kind of combined. You're going to see their names rise up. And a little, little side note here, one thing I'd really recommend that's really a fun way to read the Old Testament is to buy like a chronological Bible because a lot of the books in the Old Testament, even some of the new, really aren't in the order that they happened. And one of the ways to really get a better understanding of, of scripture is to read like a chronological Bible. And you'd see that they would insert Haggai and Zechariah into the story of Ezra. And so it's a really powerful way to do but if you were to Ezra chapter one, it would say in the first year of Cyrus, that's when they were released to go rebuild the temple. And so you've got all this enthusiasm. There's a list of all the names of people and how they organized and they got things together. And then at the very end of chapter four, there's this great, or chapter three, there's this great celebration where they actually lay the foundation. They're, they, the hardest part, they got the foundation laid. They're all ready to go. And we're gonna look at what happens in that time of worship they have here in a moment. But in chapter four, what happens is they get discouraged because then some of the other nations start to come against them and to resist them. And ultimately, they decide to stop building on the temple. And you read this very tragic, I think, tragic verse in Ezra 4 24, should be on the screen here. Thus, the work of the Lord, or the work of the house of God in Jerusalem, came to a standstill in the sec- until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. I want you to hold on to that word, standstill. not that wild? Like, they'd worked all this way, they got freed to go build this temple, they built the foundation. You're gonna see in a moment with great worship but also with some great sadness. And then discouragement comes upon them and they stop building it. And now enter Haggai. So if you actually kind of read the chronological Bible, you get to chapter four, forward end, and then Haggai would jump right in there with what Matt talked about last week. Because Haggai's first prophecy when he comes back to them is a challenge to them to start doing the work of the temple. You've waited far too long. If you were here last week, Matt described one of the excuses that they made. They they had this idea, kind of their narrative was, well, it's just not yet time to rebuild the temple. It's not yet time. Uh, Matt called it spiritual ambivalence. They were just being ambivalent to what God would have them do. And so his first message that we talked about last week was, is it right for you guys? There's a rhetorical question. Is it right for you guys to not be working on the house of the Lord when you've been building paneled and nice houses for yourself? And then we get the very famous line that's kind of echoed throughout this book. We'll see it again in chapter two. And it's the title of our sermon series, Consider Your Ways. Consider Your Ways. And he actually, I consider consider your ways like after your mind's like Dr. Phil. You know, Dr. Phil's famous line, like, how's that working for you? That's kind of what, that's what consider your ways is. It's like Dr. Phil. He's looking at the people and he says, you guys are off building your own houses instead of building the temple. And you think that you're building up all this stuff for yourself. But then he goes on to say, consider your ways because what happens? He points out to them that you guys have been taking home money, but every time you end up having none, every time you get the harvest, you think you have a lot, but it just blows away. And God actually says that he does it. He's the one that's blowing it away. He's trying to get their attention. As much as you're trying to focus on yourself, it's not working. How's that working for you? consider your ways. And then amazingly, contrary to so many of the other prophets, people actually listen to him. They do consider their ways. And at the end of chapter one, they start to rebuild the temple three weeks later. So they considered their ways for some time. Maybe they actually were convicted right away and just thought about how to get started. But we know that three weeks later, they actually start the work back on the temple. Amazing. They listened to Haggai and repented and that's where you get this big pause between Ezra 4 and Ezra 5 is Haggai 1. And then Ezra 5, when you start the very first verse of Ezra 5, says this. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, the descendant of Edo, Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel and Joshua, son of uh, Josedach, or Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in the temple. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Isn't that amazing? So what's between chapter 4 and chapter 5? It's Ezra. It's Haggai 1, and it's their repentance and their response to this message. And now we're going to talk in Haggai chapter 2, where a few weeks later he has another message to bring to the people as they've begun the work. But before we look at it, I want to kind of, kind of set the tone, because I want to see if we can maybe get like our hearts, uh, even maybe I'll dare say like our feelings in the right spot before we look at this. Show of hands, how many of you ever struggle with discouragement? Come on, every hand's got to go up, right? <laughs> discouragement. <clears throat> we all have, right? It's a common human experience. It's something that we feel that, that really gets us down. I just looked up the definition, you know, just in the dictionary part of it, at least. It says it's a loss of confidence or enthusiasm. Usually, discouragement comes when we've got like a vision for something or a goal for something. We're trying to head that way, and we're excited at the start, but then we get hit with setbacks, setbacks or things or roadblocks or things that make it more difficult. And suddenly, you know, we can start with great encouragement, and then we can find ourselves like, man, this is too tough. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. Sometimes discouragement isn't even that it presents you from getting your goal. You act, sometimes you actually make your goal. You do what you wanted, but then you look back at it and go, that wasn't what I thought it was or that wasn't what I wanted it to be. That's, I'm discouraged. That doesn't, didn't come out the way that I wanted it. If you all feel Feel that? Y'all can relate to that, so sometimes it happens in our relationships. We think about discouragement that sets in with maybe in your marriage or your your goals that you have for child rearing or in dating or friendships. Sometimes it sets in in like our workplace and stuff that we have with our career or maybe just our hobbies or a side hustle or a business we're trying to get. It sets in discouragement because you're trying to do something and you get setbacks or even you complete it and you look at it and go, oh, that wasn't what I thought. Maybe it happens in your health, you've got setbacks in your health, things that you, you want to get, you know, lose weight, or you want to get more fit, or you're struggling with an illness, and you have this goal or vision of where you want to be, and you just can't seem to get there. And I dare say it happens to us spiritually, too, doesn't it? You ever struggle spiritually where you've got some, something that you're trying to overcome, and you just can't seem to break the habit, or you've you've got, you know, some desire to really grow in emotional health, but you, you keep stumbling over the same ways, or, or maybe you're trying to be really fruitful in ministry and everything you do, you feel like it's not producing any fruit. It's not working. Like, that's discouragement. So I've been praying this week and asking, I'll ask right now for the Holy Spirit to, to draw to mind what, something for you right now. Like, where are you discouraged? And let that just kind of surface and feel, feel it right now. And then what you're feeling is what the people were feeling when we jump here into chapter two. He comes to them with this message. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of, of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak. Be strong, all you people in the land, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when I came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. One thing I love about Haggai um, is that he actually put so many dates to the prophecies that he has. And so I think we have up here a little, a little uh, graph for you to see that on August 29th, 5th, uh, 520 B.C., that was the first sermon. That was Haggai 1. Then you've got about three weeks later, September 21st, is when they start rebuilding, And now about four weeks later, he comes with a second message. Because why? Because he's seen that the discouragement has set among the people. He's seen that they've become discouraged. One thing that we know actually about this date of October 17th when he comes with the second message, it was actually the last normal day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this should be a great time of worship. Like they've just had this great time of worship. Progress is being made and they should be all excited about it. Yet in the midst of it, there's this kind of underlying discouragement setting in is primarily among the people that could remember what the former temple looked like or maybe those that actually that maybe didn't see it but a younger generation who just heard about it and they looked at it and they thought, man, this doesn't look the same. This, this is pretty shabby. <laughs> this one's not uh, of the same glory as the other because if you remember last week, Matt talked about the first temple when it was built. It was built at the height of, of the power of, of the Hebrew people, King Solomon and so it was built with luxury and just Awesomeness. Yet here you've got fifty thousand people, probably not very skilled, trying to do something with what they have when there's drought and there's famine and they're still under the reign of another country and they're looking at it and they're saying, Man, this isn't this isn't what it used to be. This isn't what I thought it would be. And that discouragement is setting in. It's not the only time that this happened either. Because if you go back in Ezra, when they laid the foundation, you read this part of the story. This is what happened in Ezra. Ezra chapter 3, they had just laid the foundation, they would built some altars, and they would got together for this great time of worship, and here's what it said. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest, in their vestments, with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward us. toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout and praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites, family heads who had seen the former temple, wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted with joy. No one could distinguish between the sounds of the shouts of joy and the sounds of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. You see, they started this project, and and two or three years into it, they they decided they just couldn't keep going forward. And we know from Ezra chapter 4, a lot of this was due to the persecution that happened. But I'm convinced, too, that besides the persecution of the other people, it was a discouragement that happened on that day, discouragement that had set in, the same discouragement that Haggai's going to try to encourage them with. This discouragement set in, and now for 14 or maybe 16 years, the foundation just laid there dormant while they worked on their own houses until Haggai won. And now they start to rebuild it, and they think, again, just like happened before in Ezra 3 when they laid the foundation, 16 years later, here they are again, conflicted, rejoicing and happy, but also like discouraged because this doesn't look the same. I thought of one story uh, pretty similar when you think about temples in my life that happened. Um, You all know that I did campus ministry at UT for 20-something years before coming on staff six years ago. And uh, one of the things that we had that was like the highlight of our ministry, probably like the, the best time, was when we had this Campus House of Prayer. In 2006, God gave us this building. I've told you all the story about how it happened. It's miraculous how it happened. But we got this building just right off of UT's main drag and CHOP. We call it CHOP, Campus House of Prayer. So we had this CHOP, and it was like filled with students, like about 100 and at its peak, like 120 hours a week, students were coming in and out of this building, praying for the campus and seeking God together. It was, it was just one of my favorite times of ministry. We ended up actually getting, it was the upper room that all we had, and then we ended up getting the downstairs two years later, and we had this entire building. Y'all know it as uh, Space 24, if you're a student. That Space 24, that building was our building until our landlord decided he was going to sell it. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, man, this was like the best of times for me. And now we've got to go try to find some other place. And as you can imagine, trying to find property around UT that's affordable, that's even doable for what we were trying to do was next to impossible. And so for months and months, while well, before we knew the date, there was a date that it was going to end, I called this the worst year of my ministry experience, and I, st- I still claim that it is this day. Hopefully, that was going to last for me for a long time. <laughs> Don't make things hard- harder on me. Um, because what I became for about a year was a, uh, was a um, foreman <laughs> through this building that we built out. We ended up getting a spot right next to Pluckers on a, a, a vertical mixed use bottom floor, but it was blank. And we had, to, we had to build it out ourselves, like hire people to do it. And I was constantly having to make all these stupid decisions about all the little colors and the floors and all the details and everything went wrong and tons more money went into it. And then at the end of it, I didn't like it. <laughs> like it was a shabby, lame campus house of prayer. I didn't like it. And that's how I feel like these people were feeling. Like here I am doing all this work trying to do this. And, but it's just not the same. And so they get discouraged. So... I was tempted at that time to just stop building, just stop the project. Have you guys ever been tempted to stop? Stop building? Did comparison have anything to do with your wanting to stop? Were you looking back at an old temple or looking back at someone else's ministry, someone else's life, someone else's marriage, someone else's career, and you thought, yeah, doesn't match? Like That's what these people are feeling right now. And he comes to them with these great exhortation, and his exhortation is this, would be point number one if you're taking no- notes. Be strong and do the work. Now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, uh, uh, Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people in the land, declares the Lord, and work. Haggai just addresses these leaders that are prone to, dis- prone to discouragement with this-, this exhortation. Be strong, or really it means like take courage is really what he's saying. like You're discouraged, now take courage, and then just do this, like work, do the work, like keep going, keep going guys, fight past this, be strong and do the work. What we would know maybe from our context in reading it, but I think many of the leaders, at least the spiritual leaders would have known is that Haggai was not just telling them to be strong. He was actually reckoning back to a time when David commissioned Solomon to build the temple. Listen to what David said when he prayed for Solomon, blessed Solomon to be the one that, that, that would do the temple work in that first temple. Back now in First, Corinthians, or First Chronicles 28. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he'll be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now the work the Lord has chosen you to, he has bu- chosen you to build a house as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the work. Notice any similarities? Like, he's not only saying, yeah, you guys be strong and do the work. He's saying, look, this is the same message that Solomon gave David. This can happen again. God can do this again. Like, be strong. Same message. Do the work. Keep going. Fight past your discouragement. Some of y'all know that I I love UT baseball. And uh, every year they kind of have like certain little phrases or Sometimes, actually, little hand signals are just different things that they do that try to kind of capture some camaraderie among the team. And one of the ones that I liked this last year that they did is every time someone would get up to a full count and they'd foul one off, the whole dugout would yell, like, keep going, keep going, you know, like, keep fighting, make that pitch work. And they'd foul another one off, and it, just, it would just get louder. It's like, yeah, keep going, like, keep fighting. It's so hard to hit a ball, <laughs> but to keep fouling them off and fouling them off, the, the dugout would just yell, like, Keep going. I get that same feel here from what Haggai is saying, guys. Just keep going. But there's something better than just the challenge to keep going because sometimes it's hard to keep going, wouldn't you say? But what Haggai does next is he attaches his keep going to a promise, which is a promise that we all need. It's the promise that God would be with us. Challenge to keep going with the promise coupled to it that makes it so powerful. Haggai 2.5, for I am with you, declares the Lord. This is what I covenanted with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God doesn't just sit on the side and speak to you, Haggai, and just say, keep going, keep going. It's coupled with the promise. Keep going. I'm with you. Remember that I'm with you. Whatever kind of discouragement you're facing, whatever the spirit drew to your mind, whatever was in your heart, God's telling you now, like, keep going. But he's also saying, I'm with you in this. I'm with you, he says. Lean on me. Let me empower you to keep going. My spirit resides within you. I never ask you to do anything that I won't give you my presence and my power within you. That's the first message that Haggai shares. Keep going, and I'm with you. His next message is going to be this Have hope. Have hope. Getting again in verse six. This is what the Lord Almighty says In a little while, you will once more shake the heavens and earth, and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. And what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Next, God says through Haggai, like you guys have hope. Because not only did they look at the temple that they were building and think, yeah, like this one's shoddy compared to the former temple. They also thought, well, if it looks shoddy, that means that God's glory is not going to be his presence. His present, it's not going to be his present. Like now we're just going to miss out on what we really would want to see God do because it just doesn't look good. Like my, our feeble efforts aren't really enough for God to, to honor and do something great with. And so Haggai comes with this great message that says, no, sir, you guys need to have hope. My glory is going to be greater in this temple than it was in the last one. Have hope. Oh, besides, you're worried about all the silver and the gold and the things that maybe make it all look better like it used to. I own all the silver, all the gold. It doesn't matter. I've told you to do this. My presence is going to be with you. Stop comparing yourselves to others. I'm with you. Have hope. God can use you. You see, they weren't called to build a, a temple like Solomon's, they were called to build that temple. Just as you might have something that God's calling you to do that you're not supposed to compare to others, is whatever God's calling you to do, he's calling you to do it. And his word for you would be, have hope. He's in charge of the fruit of your work anyway. You just be faithful and keep going, keep working and trust that he's with you. And have hope that he can use even the meagerest of things that we bring to him that he can use. If I was just to be real real honest with you guys right now, um, I've been going to this passage a lot over the last couple years. Um, COVID hasn't been very fun for pastors. Um, there's tons of studies that have come out that have said that lots of people have left, left the ministry during this period. Uh, the Association of Hill Country Churches, I'm so grateful that, that we're part of an association of churches that care for their pastors and their whole retreat that they did that Jake got to partake in this last year was just focused on helping pastors remember their calling and build them up to say, man, like, like have hope. We know these couple years have been really difficult for you. Uh, you might not know, but just before, like literally months before COVID, a, a number of people uh, left our church right before then. It was very, very discouraging for me. Um, during COVID, there's a number of people that left our church for different reasons. And we, you know, we bless them and we we send them to new churches. and We do our best to, to just trust God with all of it. But it's not fun. It's actually quite, quite discouraging. And uh, to be real honest, like one of the things I'm most excited about is that God has provided this great new place for us, and there's a lot of reason for hope, and for me, it almost feels kind of like a like a comparison moment for me, because I told you that I used to worship in this building, you know, for, for decades before when it was First Evangelical Free Church, but I'm also a little discouraged when I think about it, because sometimes I, you know, we had Rob Harrell teach here, and I look at him, I'm like, yeah, I'm no Rob Harrell, <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think I have what it takes, or I look at all the things that God did through that period and think, uh, yeah, probably... That's probably not going to happen with us. Like, I don't, I don't think I have what it takes. And so, like, these, these passages have really been helping me with my discouragement because I want to come to God and say, you know, it doesn't matter if our church isn't going to look as good as the former glory, whatever it is. This is what God has for me. This is the time that he has us here, and I'm, I'm trying to believe it. And I've gone to these words a lot to try to encourage me. And one of the things I like about Haggai and the, his com- contemporary Zechariah is multiple times they gave messages specifically to Zer- Zerubbabel. We're going to see it again here. Um, you, you saw him. You know, he said, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the people. At the very end of this prophecy, he's going to talk specifically to Zerubbabel. But Zechariah also comes to Zerubbabel with a very specific message to encourage him as a spiritual leader, because if you don't know it, your spiritual leaders struggle with discouragement. And so this is one I found a great hope in. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah came to uh, Zerubbabel with this message. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring you out to the capstone with shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small beginnings? Since the seven eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. I get the feeling that Zerubbabel, in particular, struggled with discouragement. And God would send him Haggai to give kind of a general message, and you're gonna see in a moment he's gonna give him a specific message, but man, this one from Zechariah, it hits home so hard, right? Not by might, not by power. Look, it's not about you, it's not about if you're qualified, or if you have what it takes, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And he gives him the confidence to say, your hand built it, your hand's gonna finish it. I've got plans for you. You are the one that I chose for this task. I mean, What an encouragement. And then you get to this point in Ezra, in Ezra chapter 6, and you read this. So the elders and the Jews continue to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the descendant of Ido. They finished building the temple according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Amazing. They finished the work. And then you see, if you were to go on and read the rest of chapter 6, they actually hold a great Passover, and they have this great celebration, and all the things that he said would happen, that this glory would come to this place. They feel it. They see it. They sense God's presence. And they experience the presence of God in the shoddy little temple that they built, trusting that God would use their, their meager hands to do something great, and He did. And not only that, what's more, if you take a step back, what's more amazing is that very temple that they built, the glory, the physical glory of God dwelt in it, because that was the temple that Jesus was at. That's the same temple though it was made, decorated, made more splendor by the kings of that time, King Herod. But that was the place where Jesus was dedicated as a baby. It's the place where he got lost and, and his uh, parents had to go looking for him. He said, hey, I'm in my father's house. It was a place where he taught many times. It was also the place where he overturned the tables and said, what are you doing with my father's house? Like, this place that these people built in this post-exile period was the place where the physical glory of God sat because Jesus was in that temple. Amazing to see God's faithfulness. If you take a look back now at the timeline, I just wanna bring you back. August 29th, Haggai's first sermon. Three weeks later, temple gets resumed. August, or October 14th or 17th, Haggai's second sermon. And now we're going to get to Haggai's third and fourth here in a moment. But on March 12th, 5:15, the temple was completed. Amazing, God's faithful. And three months after this construction work began, and two months after Haggai's, you know, be strong and have hope, uh, sermon, God sends Haggai with one more Dr. Phil challenge. One more consider your ways, because something happened during these next four weeks as they began working on the temple. Haggai gets insight from the Lord about something that's happening among the people, and he has one more challenge to them, and the challenge is this, check your heart, check your heart. I'll read the whole passage here, it's a little long, but on the 24th day of the ninth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says, ask the priest of the law uh, what the law says, if someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and that fold touches the bread or stew of some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. And Haggai says, if a person is defiled by contact with, some, with a dead body and touches some of these things, does it become defiled? And the priest rightly answer, yes, it does become defiled. Then Haggai says, so it is with these people in this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer to me is, is defiled. Now give careful thought to this, uh, from this day on, consider how things were before one stone was laid on the other in this temple. When anyone came with a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. When anyone came with wine with fifty measures, there was only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight and mildew and hail, and you because you didn't return to me. From this day on, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, give careful thought of the day that the foundation of the temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn until now? The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive oil have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. Super quick background, because I'm running out a little bit out of time. But what was happening is they were thinking to themselves that the work of their hands, the fact that they were actually doing the work was what made them holy. And he's saying you don't get you don't get holiness by transference. You can get defilement by transference. The easiest example is COVID. <laughs> like you don't you don't walk into a room with people with someone's got COVID. They will give you COVID. If you have antibodies that are healthy, you don't confer health to them. That would be awesome if it would, right? <laughs> but that's what they're kind of doing. They've kind of gotten this habit where now they've been working on the temple for about a month, and they start to slide down the slippery slope of thinking, well, we're doing all this work for God. We're doing all this work for God. So I can kind of compromise in some other areas of my life. Like, I mean, after all, like, I've, I've been going to small group. I've, I've been pretty faithful at worship. I've had my quiet time. So I'm just going to, I can partake in a little bit of this. Or it's worse, it sets in even some theology that changes because now you're thinking you're justified by what you do. And so you're thinking, because I'm doing this work, this is what gets me right favor with God. And they, they're getting mixed up. They're just starting to get mixed up. It's only been a month into it, but Haggai gets a word from the Lord like, check your heart, guys. Check your heart. Are you sliding down the slippery slope? Are you starting to think that your righteousness is just because you're doing this work? Are you starting to compromise in some areas? When you start to compromise, it leads you to a place of unrighteousness. When you, when you start to think that you're justified by your works, that's going to lead you to a place of self-righteousness. Watch the slippery slope. Check your heart as you're doing this work. It's great that you're doing the work, but it doesn't give you the right to justify other things in your life. And they consider their ways. And he tells them to remember what it was like before. Go back to chapter one. Remember? Remember how it wasn't working, Dr. Phil style? Like, no, how's that working for you? It's not. I can do that again if you guys continue to slip down the slope. So I'm asking you just to check your hearts. Like, let's be faithful, be strong, do the work, have your hope in God. I am with you. But always check your heart. You don't then just start doing this work in a way that's to earn God's favor or doing the work in a way that allows you to think that you can compromise. Which is a good word for us today, too, as we think about, are we really responding like we say that we are, that we are compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus? That's the order it's supposed to be in, that we're compelled by God's love to do things, not that we earn God's love by what we do and the work that we do. Finally, I'll invite our uh, communion folks to go ahead and uh, distribute the elements while I make this last point, the very last uh, prophecy that is given uh, through Haggai, again, is specifically to Zerubbabel. It's pretty interesting, like I said, that Haggai and Zechariah both have personal messages to Zerubbabel. He was a guy that struggled with discouragement. And he comes with this last prophecy on the same day that he gave that previous one, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tells the rubble, governor of Judah, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and the drivers, horses, the riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servants, rubble, son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord. I will make you like my signet ring, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. What he's doing here is a prophecy, really, of the future, the promise that there's going to be a a physical demonstration of God's kingdom, that there will be a time when Jesus rules the earth, when God, the Messiah that they were hoping in, would rule the earth. He's giving them that hope. And sometimes we need that hope too, right? We've got the things that we're trying not to be discouraged with, and we've got reason for hope, but all of our hopes that we have in this earth are going to fail. You're always going to struggle with discouragement. So he's given this one final hope to say, look, ultimately one day, Your hope will be fulfilled because I will rule the nations. And what's unique about specifically Zerubbabel is he knew that the Messiah would come to establish his kingdom, but he didn't really understand exactly how it was going to come. But he knew it would come through the line of Judah and through the line of David. And somewhere along the way, it's my thought that Zerubbabel lost hope that he was going to be in the family line of Jesus because he was the next in the line of the kingship. If you were here two weeks ago or last week, you heard that Zerubbabel was actually the grandson of the guy that was king when Babylon took everything over. And so he is in line to be in the line of David to have the Messiah come from his line. Yet I wonder if he started to not believe it because Haggai comes to him with this message. And listen to how similar it is to what Jeremiah said to his grandfather. Jeremiah said this to his grandfather, Jeremiah 22. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I'll deliver you to the hands of those who want to kill you, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Babylonians. See, God was patient with all these generations, and he had been so patient, yet here he finally had built up all of his patience with Jehoiakim. He says, You're going to be the one that gets tossed aside, and like a signet ring, I'm taking you off and throwing you aside. But did you, do you remember what Haggai said to Zerubbabel? I will make you like my signet ring, for I've chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Amazing redemption. He's telling him, like, it's not over. And now if you were to turn to your Bible and read Matthew chapter 1 and read the genealogy of Jesus, guess whose name you'll find in it? Zerubbabel. Because God was faithful to his promise, how faithful our God is, and while Malachi Prophesied. I mean, while well, Haggai prophesied at the end of this passage to Zerubbabel promising him there will be a day when, when the Messiah will come and he will rule. His contemporary, Zechariah, actually had insight into the first coming of Jesus. It's amazing if you read the book of Zechariah, because Zechariah got some insight into how Jesus would come, not just as a conquering king, someday, yes, but first he would come. Because guess what Zechariah is the one that wrote about? He wrote about this king that would come riding on a donkey. He wrote about a, 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 a Messiah that was going to be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. And he wrote about how there was going to come one that would be a shepherd that would be die for the sheep so that he could redeem them. Wild in history. Haggai and Zechariah. And Zechariah has this prophecy about the coming of Jesus that would come not in power in his first, but come to sacrifice for us. May these truths and the remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection as we take communion here. Give us courage to be strong, to have hope, and to check our hearts, because our God is faithful. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven.